I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. The Get Rich Slow Club podcast is a collaboration between Tash Etchman from Tash Invest and Anna Christina from Perla. The Get Rich Slow Club acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we record on. From coast to coast, across land, waters, and communities, we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Any advice is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs, or objectives, so consider whether it's appropriate for you. Welcome to the Get Rich Slow Club podcast, where we take you from beginner to confident investor, where we can teach you everything you need to know about investing. So come get rich slow with us. In today's episode, we are chatting to Joel from the History of Money about his journey with coin collecting and the link between mental health and money. Joel is a high school teacher, TikToker and cricketer. So Joel, can you start us off with your money win or loss? My money win at the moment would probably have to be my investment property. Um, I was lucky enough to buy a house about nine years ago and I subdivided back and got one house and, and we worked with family and got it. And the market at the moment is insane that when I got my house revalued recently, yeah, it's, it's value increased by about oh, 30%. And wow. I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. And so I was like, all the hard work I put into the house and, and doing it up and the sacrifices I made to find out how much equity is in my house at the moment, it was just... It, it just makes it all worth it, which is which is great to ha- great to have. Yeah, that's so exciting. I got mine. My friend did my evaluation recently on it, so I don't know how proper it is because no one's actually been there. Um, but yeah, it was like increased by about a hundred thousand, which is very exciting as well from the last few years. So how fun! Yay, Perth property. Yeah. Any increase is good, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it when you're owning property, not when you're not owning property. Seeing those increases have been hard. As I was buying a few years ago during COVID and seeing feeling priced out of the market is absolutely discouraging. Do you have a money winner loss, Anna? I do. So I, as you know, I have a book out and I also had an affiliate link that people could use to purchase my book. So through either Amazon or Booktopia. And I just got my first little affiliate money um, into my bank account. So it's a very small amount, but you know, it's great when you have other passive ways of making money. Uh, So it's very exciting. So thank you to everyone who used those affiliate links. It just uh, puts a little, a few more dollars in my pocket. (laughs) So thanks. 
exciting. Congrats. Well what done. about you, Tash? Yeah. I went to Sydney for work on Friday and I was looking to try and get a point flight home because I didn't want to spend lots of money on a flight. And there were no rewards flights from Sydney to Canberra, but there was a rewards flight from Sydney to Perth in business class for only $50. So I went to Perth for the weekend for $50, which is pretty cool. And flew business class. That's, That's went crazy. Yeah. And then I saved the $300 I would have spent on the, what, 40-minute flight from Sydney to Canberra. Huge win. So good. Nice. So, Joel, you're better known online as the history of money. What do you actually do on TikTok and Instagram? What do you talk about? What can people find out about you? Yeah, so essentially, apart from being a teacher, my other thing is being a coin and banknote collector, or the technical term is a numismatist. So oh, my God, say I'm that word hi- again. Numismatist. Numismatist. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. So, yeah. You know, you know what it's fancy Latin words and all that kind of thing. Let's just make it one word in all that. Um, so during COVID, I was a bit bored and I've been collecting coins and notes since I was five years old, like on and off and all that kind of thing. And my students asked me, said, Oh, you know, are you on TikTok? So I was like, No, I'm on the Tim Tams, but I'm just like, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's get this a shot. Let's get this shot. See how it goes. So I put a video about history of the $5 note and it went viral. I was like, people are into this. So over the last three years, I've been, you know, making so many different videos about coins and banknotes, about their values, the history, its relevance to society. And it's just grown so much in that time. And, and to feel like to hear stories of people telling me I've reconnected with my parents and my grandparents because they all used to collect coins and things are coming out. It used to be a big hobby in the eighties and the nineties. And then it just died down and now it's coming back up. It's, it's really great to be a part of and also be a great part in driving that um, resurgence and hobby back in Australia. It must be crazy to think, hey, I'm just going to put this little short story about a $5 note online, something I'm passionate about, and have other people really, really connect to that. Um, I know that you have a very unique story to how you got into coins and why you've got got interested in money. Can you share that as well? Yeah, it's it's very weird. Um, and it sounds pretty funny compared to what I'm doing now. So when I was a kid, I struggled to talk. Uh, my parents were really concerned. Um, they took me to a speech pathologist um, in in West Perth, and she laid a whole range of stimuli in front of me. Some you know, some building blocks, some cars, or whatever. But there was this cash register and some play money, and I've gone straight to that and started playing with it. And then I started communicating and talking, and they were like, "Wow!" Like, and this this is me reading a report years later and finding out that story. But they were shocked at how well I responded to it. So they gave me that stimuli to take away with. And then my parents were like, oh, why don't you just actually give him real money to play with? And then maybe we can start talking a bit more. So how old were you at the time, Joel? I would have been four or five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so my development was quite late, I guess, in, in that respect. Um, but yeah, they started putting, giving me money to play with and like Australian money, Malaysian money, because that's where my parents are from. And then I just started growing my collection. So other people, my family, friends would get, get involved in like giving me other stuff to collect. And yeah, and just, I just kept collecting throughout there. So it's, it makes, it's, it's quite a significant part of me in terms of my story, my growth, uh, my development. And yeah, it's just, it's just so surreal for that to be the starting point to where I am now. Started there and then ended up on TikTok. Like, what, what a cool, what a cool story. Who would have guessed that little five-year-old Joel would have been creating reels and, and videos on, on cash, right? It's just weird. Like, for example, for someone who couldn't talk before, then became a teacher and then, then start putting his entire face on, on social media. It's, it's just a surreal way about it. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I know, Joel, we've talked a little bit about how mental health and finances go hand in hand. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey navigating that space as well. Yeah, I guess 
it's both ways in that there's been a lot of research done lately about how, you know, financial um, wellness leads to poor mental health. But I guess my my experience comes from poor mental health leading to bad financial experiences or bad financial decisions. So I guess throughout my life, I've had different stages where I've experienced depression. And the biggest part me in terms of experiencing that was probably around between 2018 and 2020, which was really, really bad for me. I was in a, a work situation where I had a a boss, a direct manager who was emotionally abusive. And so with that, I was reluctant to see a psychologist at that point in time. And I guess when you don't have the right tools in place or you're reluctant or refuse to sort of, or you don't have that right advice around you and you're sort of around people that uh, enabling your behaviors as well. You end up doing things that, you know, that don't end up being good for you physically, mentally, or financially. And so if I ever had a bad week at work or whatever, I'd just book a flight and go somewhere. And that's it. I'd like, I didn't care how much money was in my bank account. I'd had a credit card with $15,000 credit, um, credit limit. I had another one that had another amount on it. And I'd just go and book flights, refinance my credit card, book another flight. And it, it was a form. It was a form of escapism, and that's it. And on top of that, and you, you sort of go out a bit more as well with your friends as well, just to sort of do that. So if you didn't have the right coping mechanisms based on that, you'd engage in, in toxic behaviors, and those toxic behaviors were very, very, very expensive to the point that my credit card debt at one point was thirty thousand dollars. It was a lot of money that I was owing, and I was more so finding myself that was sort of wasn't. I wouldn't maybe paycheck to paycheck or whatever. It was just like cool. I've I paid, I still was still budgeting. I said I paid, I had my expenses there that I'd paid out every fortnight, but also a big chunk of my income was to pay my mortgage, pay my car loan, and then paying off my credit card debt. But to pay my credit card debt, I wasn't paying it off. It was just like, oh, cool. I'd pay off maybe $600 every fortnight. But then again, I was spending $700 every fortnight on the credit card. And therefore I wasn't putting barely anything into my savings at all. And it wasn't until I had a, a colleague of mine, who sort of knew me quite, she knew me quite well. And she's like, you actually need to start seeing a psychologist. Like you cannot be using your escapism and you're, 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 you know, going out and traveling to deal with the problems that you have. Like you can't just say, Oh, I've had a bad week because this person done this to you. I'm going to go and take a flight to Brisbane for the weekend. You, you can't, you're not going to solve problems. It's going to be bad for you, both for your health, your physical, your mental health and your, and your financial, financially you're getting worse off. So I bit the bullet. I went and saw my GP, wrote me a mental health plan. And I started seeing my psych and I've been seeing my psych now for four years now, which has been a real turning point. And so, and really going there and talking about my situation and giving the coping mechanisms and 2020 was a big turnaround in that where I developed the mechanisms to deal with my emotionally abusive boss. And, you know, it ended up him driving, I I ended up driving him out, I guess, of where he's working due, due to me finally taking a stand and really going through. I felt when you're working with someone who's like that, who makes you feel you're really alone, belittles you, feels like you've got no opportunity or options to help yourself, you feel like, oh, wait, this is all I am. I'm worthless. I'm nothing. I'm this. I'm going to do whatever I can to try and fix that. And that's what I was doing before. But now I saw my site, got the coping mechanisms. And at that point, money was an issue in my head. It's like, I'm trying to fix myself. I'm going to do these things. And then yeah, I found myself, I was traveling way less often. I was still traveling, but within my own budget and my own means. And I in that in that time from 2020 to 2022, I sorted myself out. I figured out what my greater purpose in, in life was. 
Um, but most importantly, financially, I actually ended up getting myself out of debt. So by June, June 2022, I'd started a new job. At that same time, I paid off my car loan. I paid off my credit card loan. So I've got no credit card debt anymore. And I've actually got a lot of savings and I've also got, I'm net asset positive thanks to my house as well. And so it, it comes down to recognizing your habits, recognizing your coping mechanisms. And then also taking a stand and being able to seek help when you, when you need it in that respect, because we think about the emotional and physical impacts of poor mental health, but we don't think about the financial impacts of poor mental health. Because if you're undertaking these types of coping strategies, it might be going out drinking every weekend and binge drinking, whatever. It might be eating copious amounts of food, or it might be traveling, or it might be spending money on a whole range of things just to impulse buy, um, because your, your headspace isn't that great to make you feel, and you do those things make you feel better the financial costs are far reaching on that and that's going to have more potential implications on terms of your credit rating your ability to buy property your ability to build savings and all that kind of thing and so i'm grateful i had that friend who stepped in and intervened but it also comes down to the people that are around you who are able to willing to say that truthy to you on top of that the barrier at the moment is it is quite expensive to go and see a psychologist it is when you go, you're looking at $290, $300 a 50-minute session, and Medicare is only covering $150 each session for up to six sessions for the year, unless they extend a mental health plan, then that might be another six sessions on top if your GP seems it's it's worthy. And so it becomes a further short-term cost on that where people will be like, oh, why am I spending $300 a session on this when I can spend $300 on going out and make myself feel better? But I think people don't understand, people who are in that situation and sort of perpetuate themselves in that, they don't understand the short-term gains versus the long-term mental health costs based on that. Mm. There's definitely some, like, thank you for sharing. That's an incredible story. Um, just some cheaper mental health options that are on the top of my head. My mirror is, um, I think it's $197 and then you get the $90 Medicare rebate. But the first three sessions, you can also get $20 off. So it ends up being under $100. And there's also the new access program by Beyond Blue, where you can get six free sessions with a mental health coach as well. That's a really good option if you can't afford a different psychologist. It's so important, right? Like our mental health can affect every aspect of our lives. And the financial side is one of it, right? Like health, well-being and so forth is is huge. And that financial impact can be massive. You can be in massive amounts of debt that will affect your your future ability to make choices for yourself financially. So uh, like what, a, what an inspiring story, Joel. Like, thank you so much for sharing because obviously you were in a really hard place and you had the support system to help you kind of navigate that and you've come kind of come out on top. What are some of the things that um, you think are really worth sharing for anyone who might be in that kind of situation where they don't know how to navigate out of it? They, they might be overspending or or so forth due to their mental health. What are some of the things that you, you would suggest um, someone look into? I think you need to be really willing to be open about your situation. You really need to talk about your situation. Find someone that you can really trust talking about your, this is my financial situation right now. What are the small steps right now I can take to improve this? Right. At the second, at the second time, when it comes to your mental health, you need to see a GP ASAP. You need to see a GP ASAP, get your mental health plan sorted out, get it done, find a, find the right psychologist. And if not, if you can't afford a psychologist, maybe look at these other options. Maybe your employer has a um, employee assistance package that they can do and that you can go see them. You know, but for example, in, in teaching, most schools offer that. 
as well. So I guess the two things, I think really the first and foremost thing is like you need to understand and acknowledge the situation that you're in. I'm not in the best mental health space. I'm doing self-destructing behaviors. It is taking a toll on my financial, mental, and physical health. You need to find someone that I think ideally perfectly removed from the situation, someone that you can trust and be able to openly talk about them. Because if you sort of keep it within yourself or you, within your bubble, within that influence of friends or people that you spend your time around with and they self-perpetuate the behavior, you're not going to get the help that you need in that respect. So be open, be honest, be readily able to acknowledge your situation if it means if you just have to, if you don't want to talk to someone first, maybe journal it out, get a book, write it out, write an exercise book, map out your finances at the moment, map out your feelings at the moment, map out your, what is the smallest thing that you can do right now to take the right direction that you need. And then from there, then start making the more significant decisions of going to see your GP, go and see a, go see a financial advisor or, or someone else within that space that is qualified to help you out of the situation. And then take those, take the steps progressively to that because especially in the situation I am, there knows there's no quick fix situation. It's about understanding where you are now, where you want to be, and that growth process takes a long time. There are going to be ups and downs along the way, and you need to recognize that as long you understand that the progression is happening and you're going to work towards that way to get yourself out of any debt that you've got yourself into, um, but also at the same time, improving your headspace and improving your physical self as well at the same time. They're all yeah, really, really great tips. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, it's been a really incredible journey to see. Um, how did you actually get into the proper coin collecting? Did your parents just start giving you the money to collect? Did you go and get one of those books? I remember I used to have, I think, the one for stamps. Do you have those for coins as well? Yeah, we do. The word yes. for stamp collecting is philately. Philately, <laughs> really? that's it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> and, I, and I know this because my partner inherited a bunch of stamps. So for other new words to learn on this podcast, philately <laughs> is the other one. <laughs> um, no, my parents just gave me some coins and then I think a family friend gave me an album. And I think back then, I don't know, back in the 90s, the news agents used to do things like buy this magazine and you get a free coin or you buy this magazine and you get a free stamp. So I think it was like coins of the world or something. And so I used to get those magazines every month from the news agent. You paid like 10 bucks for them. And then so I just started building here and there and whenever. And I guess as you grow through being a kid and then being a teenager, you grow through your phases, whether you're so obsessed with it, then you're not obsessed about it, then you get back into it and you're obsessed about it. So I guess the later stage of obsession, obsession came about when COVID happened, when the, my collection was there and it's sitting there and it was quite a significant collection, but I just didn't even really think about it until my students asked me. And I was like, okay, let's talk about it. And that's where we're at now. How did your students get interested? Like, obviously you've talked about coin collecting to your students. Um, and I guess, does it come up through financial literacy? Is it just interest? Like, how did that even come up? Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, like the previous school I was teaching business management and economics ATAR and in my classroom and I have my own classroom. So I actually had a money wall. And so I put up different banknotes from all around the world. And then so, and then during that time, all the new series of Australian banknotes came out. So in 2016, the new $5 note came to 2020, the new 100 came. So everyone got really excited about that. And then so the discussion sort of happened where, you might be teaching year 12 economics and then you're talking about exchange rates. And then suddenly you're talking about money and then currency and then banknotes. And so the kids would always love going back to it. And so it was a really good idea. And so, and even at, in, in school, like when a new $5 note came out, I actually organized a banknote swap at, at the school. Oh, cool. So the, the bank I used to bank with, they were very obliging to provide a, a whole bunch of notes and then the kids swapped and it was, it was a really great fun. So within the report that I had my students, they knew that about me. And then it wasn't until when COVID happened when they said, oh, you should put that stuff out there because people might be interested to know. So yeah, it was, it's really awesome to have that. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now, being in a classroom is a real privilege uh, to have in the first place that you do get to shape a generation of kids. But for them to be that interested in you and in your growth is also quite a blessing in itself as well. Yeah, definitely. Have you found like actually having real physical money um, helps teach kids about financial literacy? Like I'm interested in how that's changing these days, switching to card over cash. Yeah. And, and it's funny because Michelle Bullock, the RBA governor, came out the other month and said only 13% of transactions are now done with cash. And so we're getting a new generation of kids coming through that don't see cash at all. When I go and talk to my students, and when was the last time you held cash? And most of them would say, not in the last couple of months. It's just like, cool, my parents transferred money to my bank account, put it in my card, tap and pay, tap and pay, tap and pay. So when they see the physical sense of currency in front of them, it brings this different psychological meaning in that. So one is that there's, there's two trains of thought here. The one, one train of thought is that, and there's research about this, people that generally save and spend money with cash have a emotional connection to the money that's in their wallet. So there's that psychological aspect of it. So they tend to budget a bit more tighter. They use cash as a tool in that respect. On the other side, I guess there's a social media trend. And I think you've probably heard it is about like, you know, girl math, guy math, whatever math that is. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit frustrating, but people say, Oh, there's cash in my wallet. Technically that money is not in my bank account. I'm free to go and spend it now, which is not the ideal way of going about it. So people now, or people, when people hold cash, especially when my students hold cash, that's usually the train of thought that I get. They're like, Oh, this is a physical thing. This money doesn't come out of nowhere. I've got to be really careful with it or. Oh, this money's just there. I'm just going to spend it as long as I don't spend whatsoever in my in my bank account in itself. So it's very interesting to see where that discourse is coming from, but you're sort of still sort of getting that same outcome from that. I find that so fascinating. So I used to be a server back in Canada um, where tipping is a huge thing. And so many people that I knew would use their tips because it's actual cash and they would spend that money. Whereas what you what they had in their bank account, they held on to. But because of tipping culture, you make way more money in tips than you do in your hourly wage. And I remember just being like, I don't want to spend all my tips. And so I tried to do the opposite where I took all that money and tried to save it because the tactile thing of like physically giving something away is is emotionally much more charged than if you're just using a debit card. And that's something I'm trying to teach my kids. So it's interesting, Joel, that you actually see the same thing when you're teaching your students. What do you find is the best way to get kids involved in learning about financial literacy and being interested in the subject? Um, I guess when it comes to teaching any other subject is trying to make it relatable to them. I think money is instantaneously relatable to them. It's just showing them what the outcomes are from the different scenarios presented for them. So there's a train of teaching at the moment called problem-based learning. 
and design thinking and showing kids rather than tell them, oh, here's a theory behind, I don't know, term deposits or savings accounts, whatever. It's like give them a problem in front of them to solve, give them the tools and resources to work out the solution for the problem. So what I generally do in, when it comes to my teaching, especially of, you know, when we do some financial literacy stuff, we don't do it often because the curriculum doesn't allow for it in, at least in Western Australia, there's no provision for financial literacy in our curriculum, nor that we have at the time. Um, and that's something I'm really working on with my current school at the moment, but giving them real life problems, like, Hey, here's a problem where this person needs to save this much. What tools can you use to try and fix this? So give them resources they need and all that kind of thing, because what a lot of people don't understand is that teen, especially teenagers, they have more access to information than we ever had, right? So they're understanding about investing early on. They're understanding about um, financial issues at the, at the moment. But the problem is they do not have the skills yet to become critical thinkers. And in order, so we need to develop their critical thinking skills and then give them the resources to solve them the problem. And then as educators, especially in the financial literacy space, is to walk them through the problem and help them partly on their own, but partly for our guidance to help them solve it. And I think that's really the best way of going about it rather than having giant websites full of information and then people just getting overwhelmed with information and then they sort of give up and then try and use their experiences around them to try and navigate the financial world from there. Why do you think financial literacy isn't really included in the curriculum? Like, this might be a loaded question that you have no response, no answer to, but it's something that I, it comes up time, time and time again when I talk to people. So that question has been brought up to several state governments, federal governments in that time. And, you know, it's usually the state governments that develop the curriculum through their curriculum authority. So in Australia, in WA, we've got um, the schools, um, so SCARSA, SCSA, um, Schools Curriculum and Standards Authority. And they've said, oh, no, we've got some financial literacy stuff in the maths program. We've got the year 11 general economics course that has some financial literacy stuff, but it's not a directly taught subject. And I think we get a set amount of hours per year to teach all subjects, all domains. So you're teaching English, humanities, mathematics, science, physical education. And then in Catholic schools, you're teaching religious education on top. When you add all those hours up and you add all the minimum requirements on top of that, where is the time to to teach it? And so there needs to be a modernization of our curriculum to ensure education of those life skills rather than trying to teach things that may not be relevant down the track. Because in the end, we're seeing a growing movement away from traditional pathways of learning. We're seeing a, a movement in terms of pathways of future progression, uh, but we're seeing the curriculum that is probably falling behind in that. And so some schools are taking it upon themselves to deliver financial literacy education. So there's a couple of schools in, in WA that currently do that quite well, but other schools, and it comes down to resourcing, funding. There's been a lot of changes with the negotiation of teachers' EBAs in, in, across the country recently. So there's going to be financial constraints and time constraints on top of that. So it's a very delicate balance, but that drive to teach financial literacy education must come from the top from government and then being mandated down to the schools from there. And you might possibly have a teacher who's a TikTok star if, uh, yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I'm always interested about that. Cause I never, I mean, I didn't go to school here. Right. So I'm always very curious about Australian that. I want to go back to coin collecting a little bit, maybe controversial, but can collecting and reselling coins be a side hustle or is that a big no, no in the coin collecting community? Ooh. The, oh. I think this part is where I think it's a no-no, but there's different trains of thought when it comes down to coin collecting. And I see the new generation collectors, and this is probably partly myself to blame that 
when I go and make videos out there telling that a coin's worth a certain amount of value, people get excited because people will then go to banks, clean out change machines, try and find rare coins, flip them and sell them and try and make a profit. And then what's happened now is that when the new releases have come through, there's now more people trying to buy those new releases and then sell them at a massive profit after that on top of that. They're generally amongst the traditional and new collectors who want to learn about collecting and build collections based on their own niches, their their own understanding, their own passions about it. That's where the chasm is with coin collecting at the moment. But what we're seeing now is that because there's less disposable income at the moment, you know, interest rates have risen, um, savings have diminished over over the last 18 months, we're seeing that flipping and selling market diminish quite significantly in that. And because of that, we've seen the prices and values of coins gone down by about 30% in the last 12 months. Oh, On wow. the other hand, people, and this is what I tell people, is like, if you want to get involved in coin collecting, if you're looking for a way to flip and sell quickly, this is not the hobby for you. This is not the place for you. But there are investments in coin and note collecting from very, very old banknotes and coins that, you know, there's rare Australian coins and notes and, and world coins and notes from, you know, early 1900s and even into the 1800s that do have significant levels of value, which people use as investment, as part of the investment portfolio, you know, amongst a balanced investment portfolio and may probably make a small proportion of their portfolio. But when it comes to collecting, I tell them, why are you collecting? What is it that you want to collect? What is your niche or what is your passion? Are you collecting cricket coins, for example? Are you trying to collect one of every single coin? Are you trying to collect one of every signature combination of every single banknote? And so when people ask me, what should I collect? I said, what are you interested in? And then we can work from there rather than saying, oh, I just want to make money. Then if you want to make money and that's your only passion, you are going to be in a lot of hurt and pain very quickly. Yeah, it's a really good point about always coming back to your why and why you're doing something. But it does look very fancy on TikTok when someone's like, this coin is worth $400, but it's only $2 coin or something like that. How does someone actually find out what a coin is worth? Is it just set by the price on eBay? Is there kind of a standardized thing for it? It's, it's a balance of things. And because with coin collecting in Australia at the moment, the sale of coins is now being, I guess, decentralized is the best term. So pre-eBay, you used to go to a coin dealer. They'll be the ones determining the market. eBay came in, but now seeing a lot of Facebook buy and sell Facebook groups also appearing as well. So you're looking at the combination of the prices being offered over those methods, and then that will determine what the price or value of the coin in the market's worth. So you look at sale prices on sold prices on eBay. You look at the auction prices or sold prices in an, in a Facebook group. You look at auction um, centers and seeing what their values are. And then you have a look at what the dealers are trying to sell from there. But at the moment, the dealers are no longer controlling the prices. It's actually a decentralization of the buying selling place that's now back to the collectors who are no longer going through the middleman of a dealer or through eBay and determine the market themselves. So we're seeing a more liberated market and therefore we're seeing a, a greater fluctuation in prices. Whereas previously prices wouldn't really fluctuate year on year. They'll just sort of hover and change. You know, every six or 12 months, now seeing prices fluctuating weekly, like you're represented in a, you know, in a more liquid market, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you find there's many, like this morning, I did an interview with someone about financial scams and fraud. Do you find that there's an issue with that in the coin collecting community? Yeah, definitely. There's been people trying to create counterfeit products. They've been using names of reputable dealers or reputable providers. There've been people who've been trying to sell on eBay and groups saying they claim to have the product and they never had the product. But we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing that being counted now. So a lot of the Facebook groups are now getting ID verified by the administrators. So what they're doing now is you want to sell in a group, you got to provide your ID. 
um, a photo of yourself, provide that, they keep that in a separate hard drive in a safe because obviously um, identity protection and fraud is, um, is, is of paramount importance. So they've got to keep that. And so they know now if you're going to try and con someone in those groups, we can back you to your ID, report you to the police and then take care of that. And then people have been caught from that. On the other hand, however, due to, I guess, the popularity of coin collecting, a lot of people have been trying to get onto the social media bandwagon as well. And so they've been trying to do live streams and all that kind of thing to the point where these people are revealing, inadvertently revealing their locations of their of their places and then getting their coin collections being stolen from their own houses. Oh, and we've okay. seen that mm-hmm. happen quite a bit in the last three or four months. So I guess for me, I'm very careful in how I manage my collection. Mine's very, very small. I generally, when I buy, I sell straight away because I'm only creating videos now. And I'm more about the history of it and all. And so my collection is maybe a very small percentage of what it used to be on the basis of of security for myself and, and I guess my house and all that kind of thing. Um, so we're moving away from scams into much, not, I'm saying it's not prevalent completely, but that's becoming probably more common thing now where people are moving away from trying to scam people from selling fake or non-existent items to people actually being robbed. Mm, wow. So with so many of us switching over to digital currency and a lot of us not even holding cash or coins in our hands, what do you think the future holds for for coin collecting or just using money in general, I guess? Well, yeah, I think I think you got to look at two points. In terms of the coin collecting point of view, you got to look at the viabilities of, you know, Royal Australian Mint and the Perf Mint, for example. Perf Mint is probably going to be viable for a very long time because they specialize in selling bullion. So selling gold, silver, platinum, they'll be fine because – that's just a form of investment, people like that. The Royal Australian Mint has, a, has an existential, existential crisis at the moment. They've come across a very large a large resurgence of the collection. However, their revenue is also based on the production of circulating coinage for Australia and for many other Pacific Island nations as well. So a part of the money they make has to come from circulating coinage. And if that's, the demand for that is falling, they've got to make the shortfall somewhere else. So they're really struggling at the moment to meet the demand of collecting coinage. Um, they do not have the productive capacities to increase at the moment. They do not have the research and development to be more innovative in that. So it's going to come down to how they are able to manage to collect the market moving forward. They are the only government department or agency in the federal government that's self-funded. So essentially their existence has to come down to how you know coin collecting exists in the future. From that. So that's, that's one part. When it comes to using currency, physical currency, I don't think we'll be completely, completely digital. We will need to see some sort of backup system, a physical backup system. I mean, if we look at, you know, the outage of Optus last year, the outage of Square for a couple of days as well. If people can't accept payments, you need to, as a business, have a contingency plan to be able to accept cash. And what shocked me completely is that businesses were closing because they couldn't accept cash because Optus was shut down and it didn't have a contingency plan to accept cash because they didn't have a float that's there. And for me, that just, and for someone who helped run a family business for 16 years, run a restaurant for 16 years, to not have cash as your backup plan when you're accepting you know, 80% of your transactions as, or 90% of transactions as digital is insane. So there needs to be a physical cash system. And the RBA and the RBA, the Mint and the Treasury have said publicly we'll still provide cash for as long as those as people need it. And we've seen the acceleration of cashless usage in, you know, Sweden and Scandinavian countries, but they're seeing a slight uptick in cash usage because they're realizing there are issues in going completely digital. So you, and so what I see in the future, I don't think we go completely cashless. I think we'll probably hit a saturation rate of about 
90 to 95%, but there will still be cash around for those that require it. How often do you use cash first card? Oh, see, see the thing is, I, I love playing the freaking flyer points game. Yeah. Like, as you guys know, I fly a lot. Um, so I probably use card 80 to 85% of the time, but I always use cash. I always have a, a amount of cash on me because I love going to the supermarket, using my notes and then getting the coins and then seeing what coins I find in my change. Because I guess for being a coin collector and still maintaining that interest, you still have to use cash to an element as well. So big purchases, all my bills are automated through my direct debits from my credit card and then paid off at the end of the month. But when it comes to day-to-day expenses, like going to the supermarket or going buying lunch, whatever, I love to use cash as much as possible through that. That sounds so fun. Like the surprise of what coins you get. <laughs> I need to be more interested in it now. I'm like add a fun, a fun element to your shopping. Yeah, it's, it's like a nice little surprise after you've been get price gouged at the, at the, at the um, till. So it's fun. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Joel. That was such an important chat and there's so many helpful things in there. Um, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram. So on TikTok, the history of money and on Instagram, the history of underscore money because someone took my handle. So oh, no. make sure you put an underscore in that. Otherwise, you might see me around the news somewhere sometime soon. <laughs> or on a game show. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, so yeah, I'll, I'll be on a hard quiz in June. So watch out for that. Exciting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Joel. Thanks so much for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please rate us five stars, write a review, or share with a friend. If you're new to investing, make sure to listen to our first 10 episodes. Follow us at Get Rich Slow Club or Tash at Tash Invest or me at Anna Christina. This show was brought to you by Natasha Edgman, who is an authorized representative, 12-99881 of Guideway Financial Services, AFSL 420367 and Perla, who is an authorised representative, 1281540 of Sanlam Private Wealth, AFSL 337927. Knowledge is power, especially when it comes to investing. So make sure you check out our financial services guides and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination for any investments you're considering. See our show notes for more info. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.